Good morning and welcome to this part of our service. I couldn't help but think when Warren was uh, talking about setting up his desk and taking a little collection at the door there. Um, reminded me of a story I heard some time ago of a family that was traveling home from church and and the father was complaining about the sermon and the mother was complaining that the choir was off and Grandma had her issues, and so they were all kind of down and out about the way church had went that morning. And Junior there in the back seat pipes up and he says, Well, Pops, you got to say it wasn't a half bad show for a buck. I say that to say this. Perhaps if we collected our $100 at the door, uh, maybe we'd be more prone to stay awake and less likely to find fault, but I guess there'd be a lot of pressure on the preacher. I don't know how that would work. All right, well, so much for that. Turn with me to John 15. We looked at the uh, front half of this chapter some weeks ago, that of the vine and the branches. I would like to uh, turn our attention to the latter part of this chapter now, and I'm going to address a subject this morning that may seem somewhat foreign to us at, uh, at first thought. I took the title for this topic right out of this chapter, If the World Hate You. I have to ask you, it would be interesting to know, how many of you here ever felt that you experienced hatred from someone? I I thought about maybe just taking a little poll, but then I thought, well, maybe not. Maybe Maybe that wouldn't be appropriate. But as I reflected on my life, I can't really say that I've ever... I've ever experienced where I felt that somebody literally hated me, just with everything he had, just hated me. I've had some experiences that were less than pleasant, Uh, one in particular that always kind of comes to me when I think of somebody not really liking me very well was when I was a tester back in the day, 17, 18 years old, and there was one month I couldn't get a hold of this guy to go to his place to test, and back in those days it was appropriate to just show up. So if you couldn't get a hold of the guy, you just show up. Well, I had a pretty tight schedule that week, so I thought, well, he's going to milk. I'm just going to show up. So I showed up only to find out the reason that he hadn't answered his phone was because he was on vacation and his mom and dad were doing the milking. Well, there I was. It's 5 o'clock in the morning. I have a tight schedule. I really don't have time to to go somewhere else that morning to, to test. And so I begged his father to just let me stay there and, and do the work. I mean, I'll, I'll talk to Nelson when he comes home, and, and we'll get the paperwork. But just let me test the cows this morning. So he agreed to do that, albeit a bit grudgingly. And um, in, in retrospect, I would have never done that again. I mean, I can understand it now a little bit better. But anyway, that's what we did. When, when the man came home from vacation... He wasn't very happy with me, and he kind of left me know that, and I felt bad, and whatever, and that was never going to happen again. So, next month rolls along, I call up, his wife answers, I said, Darlene, can we come test? Yep, you can come. Showed up that evening, set my stuff up in the barn, and I'm there doing paperwork as I always do, and the weird thing was, uh, he wasn't done feeding his cows whenever I got there, and that never happened before when I I came to test, he was always, he always had that part done. And... uh, so I'm sitting there doing my thing, and all at once I realize the feed cart's behind me, and I look behind me, and there he is just boring daggers through me. 
just like I could wring your neck. I said, what did I do wrong? I moved out of the way. He finished feeding his cows and didn't say a word, no good evening, no nothing. And this was very out of character for this man. I wasn't sure what I did until his wife showed up and she goes, I forgot to tell Nelson you were coming. <laughs> okay, that explains it. He figured two months in a row I pulled this dirty stunt on him and uh, he had no time for me. When he found out what had happened, he admitted he could have wrung my neck. So uh, I, I escaped unscathed, but boy, that was the closest thing to hatred I think I ever experienced. Well, um, but to have the world hate us. Let's read this, this, uh, this part of the chapter. We're going to read verses 18 through 16, 4. If the world hate you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. Remember the word I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will keep yours also. But all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. If I had not come and spoken unto them... They had not had sin, but now they have no cloak for their sin. He that hateth me hateth my father also. If I had not done among them the works which not other man did, they had not, excuse me, they had not had sin. But now have they both seen and hated both me and my father. But this cometh to pass that the world might be, word might be fulfilled that is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And ye also shall bear witness, because ye have been with me from the beginning. These things have I spoken unto you, that you should not be offended. They shall put you out of the synagogues, yea, the time cometh, that whosoever killeth you will think that he doeth God's service. And these things will they do unto you, because they have not known my Father nor me. But these things have I told you, that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said not unto you at the beginning, because I was with you. All right, so I, I want to just quickly define the word hate here. Uh, I think we all know what that means. It's used quite a bit in this passage that we just read. But it means to detest, to despise. Um, sometimes in the Bible it's used in a, a little less um, a harsh in a harsh way. Uh, Jesus talks about hating father and mother, which basically means uh, loving them less. It doesn't necessarily mean vengeful hatred. So anyway, that's that kind of in this context though the the word hatred would mean more that vengeful, forceful detesting of someone. The other thing we need to define is what is the world? The world in the Bible can have three different meanings. It can mean creation. It can mean the human race in general. Or it can mean that kingdom of darkness that includes the unregenerate fallen man and all his programs and interests and propaganda that makes him function and enjoy life. That's what we're talking about here, the unregenerated world as in contrast to the Christian. The Bible refers to the world in a number of ways. It talks about the kingdoms of the world. It talks about the wisdom of the world. It talks about the rudiments of the world. 
the children of the world, the God of the world. So we have definitely a lineup of things that are worldly. I also want to make something clear here that in the beginning, um, we will be approaching this subject exactly the way Jesus was laying it out. There, an argument could be made that the world has always hated the Christian. And that is true. That, that's, a, that's a proper argument. However, Jesus is warning in this particular passage that they're going to hate you to the point that they will be willing to kill you. And you and I are going to have to admit that here in North America, at least in the last hundred or so years, we have not experienced such a thing. It has happened in other parts of the world. It continues to happen in other parts of the world. We, as a people here, have not experienced that sort of hatred to the intensity that Jesus is talking about it here. It's also instructive that Jesus' um, little uh, talk here on hatred of the world comes right on the heels of his exposition on the vine and the branches. And reading through that part of the, the chapter is, is a very, it's a very pleasant read. In other words, um, that, that synergism between the vine and the branches, the love that he commands, actually, in verse, um, what verse is that? Verse 17, these things I command you that you love one another. It's interesting that in the Living Bible, verse 17 says, I command you these things to love one another because, verse 18, the world will hate you. In other words, you're going to experience enough hatred in the world. You don't have to hate each other. So love each other so you can deal with this hatred that's what you're going to face in the world. All right. I would like to address this topic in three different areas this morning. And uh, I would like to look at three different, three different angles. Number one, why does the world hate us so badly? Number two, why doesn't the Christian always feel that hatred? And number three, what can I do with this information? How can I prepare for that hatred should it come, should the extreme actually come? So let's look at this just briefly here. Why does the world hate Christians so badly? Well, look at verse 18, right out of the gate. It hated Jesus. If it hates Jesus, it's going to hate you. Verse 20 brings out the, uh, the, the concept of like master, like servant. It hates Jesus. It will hate you. You identify with Jesus. 1 John 3, 1 says, Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hates you. We can expect the same treatment from others to be somewhat identical to what we identify with. I mean, that's wordy, I know. But in other words, what I'm saying is, if uh, someone says to you, are you a Democrat? And uh, you say, sure, I am. Immediately, they're going to say, okay, he identifies as a Democrat. He must believe this, 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 and this. You know, you kind of box it up and say this is what the person believes. There's an identity there. Um, I had a very interesting phone call here about a month ago. Um, phone rings, and um, caller ID says it's Gallup. I had never got a call from Gallup before, so I thought, oh, I'll take it, see what, see what they say. You know? I knew what it would be, and of course it was. It was the survey that they, you know, the, these polls they like to do and whatnot. And it was quite an array of questions that they asked me. But when it got to the political side of things, um, they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to say a name. You tell me what your reaction is. So they went through the gamut. 
Uh, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, you know, just down through, Bernie Sanders, what do you think? I'm like, I don't know what I think. I mean, it, it's just, it's just, it's kind of moot to me, okay? I mean, well, who, who would you lean toward? Uh, none of them. Um, um, do you, are you more Republican or Democrat? Neither. Uh, are you conservative or liberal? I'm ultra conservative. Oh, okay. Uh, they, they didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how, they wanted to identify me with something and I would not allow them that privilege. So it was very, it was very, very confusing for these people. Jesus says, if you can't stand with me, or if you do stand with me, it will be no different for you than it was for me. So now let's explore that a little bit more. Why did the world hate Jesus so, so badly? Well, verse 21, they didn't know God. This is a theme that reverberates through the book of John over and over. They, don't know me, they do not know God because they don't know me. They don't know me because they do not know God. That The two go together. They thought they knew God, but when Jesus came and did not line up with their idea of God, they went with their idea and not with Jesus. Okay, another reason the world dislikes Jesus so much. Verse 22. They did not care to have their sin and hypocrisy exposed. They loved this ignorance is bliss phenomenon. They liked that cloak. <clears throat> Paul talks about this. He talks about that when he persecuted the church, he experienced innocence because... He, he didn't know he was doing wrong. He, he had not had that revealed to him yet. But when Jesus took off that cloak, he suddenly understood that he was guilty. And he, he, um, he took care of that problem. These people here did not like it that they can no longer say Corbin and ignore their parents. See, their hypocrisy was exposed. They no longer liked it that they, every time they watered that donkey, they had to think of the sick man in the temple. That bothered them. They couldn't do that anymore. They couldn't ignore the sick and water the donkey at the same time. They could no longer waltz to the best seats in the synagogue and feel good about it. Jesus just took these things and said, just exposed it, and they had nothing to say. And they hated that. So they hated Jesus. They hated the, the messenger. All right, verse 24, another reason they hated Jesus is there was absolutely no excuse not to honor this man, and yet they chose not to do it. Jesus said, they saw my work, they've seen my miracles, they heard my teachings, they know no other man can do it, and yet they choose to ignore that. They choose not to give him the honor he deserves. That's why the world hated Jesus so badly. And the sad part is, this was primarily the religious of the day. It wasn't the heathen. This was the the religious of the day. All right, let's go on and look at a few more reasons why the world hates the Christian. Verse 19, we have been chosen out of the world. If you go back into uh, verse 16 of the same chapter, we didn't read that verse, but it says, uh, ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that you should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain, and that whatsoever ye ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. So kind of the context here, in this day and age that uh, Jesus is living here, it was the uh, accepted uh, thing for people to seek out their teacher. So in other words, you, talk, you remember how Paul said he sat at the feet of Gamaliel. 
That was Paul choosing Gamaliel to be his teacher. What Jesus is saying here is, you didn't come around looking for me. I came around looking for you. I chose you. You didn't choose me. It may be is best understood like this. In Matthew 22:14, Jesus says, Many are called, but few are chosen. Perhaps it, it, it applies to us like this. We are all given the invitation. All right, Every man that wants to receive Christ can do that. Once we do that, we say, Jesus, here I am. I'm, I'm going to be yours now. Jesus chooses us. He doesn't look over us and say, you're not going to be a whole lot of good. You don't have, uh, your IQ level isn't very high, and, and you, don't have the, you don't have what I'm looking for, so I'm going to disregard you. He doesn't do that. He chooses us. He says, yes, I have a place for you in my kingdom. Another reason that the world hates us is we do not use the world's system of measurement. Verse 19. The world says you hate your enemies. Jesus says you love your enemies. The world says sue. Jesus says don't go to law. The world says get a life. Jesus says lose your life. The world says prepare for retirement. Jesus says lay up your treasure in heaven and don't worry about that. It is extremely confusing and frustrating to the world. They do not know what to do with people that think that way. Let's look at another one. Verse 19 again, we are not the world's own. We all start out at the same place. When we're born, yes, in one respect, we are innocent people. We understand that. But in a a very real way, we are also the world's. We're all born the same way, with the same sinful nature. We are the world's, okay? At some point, we choose to step out of that realm and into the realm of the kingdom of God. The world loses his own. And, and And that bothers the God of this world. And he does not want that to happen. And so he hates us because we have chosen to not identify with the world. We are no longer the world's own. It's the nature of humanity to have a beastly side. And if a person decides he is not going to conform with the standards of the world, he will be sidelined at best and he will be there will be attempted coercion at the worst. And so we have to accept this. The world will hate us because we are not its own. The last one I have here, why the world will hate us, is because we bear witness of Jesus in verse 27. The word martyr, as you well know, means witness. And the early church, for many, many, many years, sealed their witness with their blood. The world doesn't mind us too badly if we kind of stay in a corner, stay kind of boxed up, don't get too noisy. But when we start to bear witness for Jesus, it becomes a problem. Peter and John experience this pretty quickly after they receive the Holy Spirit and they're in the temple preaching. And they're not appreciated, so they're brought out and they're told, now you be quiet, just be quiet. And Peter and John say, we can't do that. We, We cannot help 
but, but testify to the things that we have seen and heard. Bearing witness for Jesus will never go down easily. All right, let's look at the second part of this. Why isn't the world's hatred always readily obvious? I have four things here. First of all, there are degrees of resistance. If you will look at this passage that we read, in verse 18 it talks about the world hating us. In verse 20 it talks about the world persecuting us. And then in the following chapter, in verse 2, it says, Yea, the time will come that they will kill you. So you see there's kind of degrees here. It's not always the same. And there has been definitely times in history where Satan is okay with different tactics. Um, It's not like Satan's hatred has leapt up, but he has used various degrees of tactics. Sometimes it's an angel of light, sometimes it's a roaring lion. So that's why the world's hatred is not always obvious, is because sometimes it's a little bit more veiled. All right, another reason that uh, it isn't always obvious is because the world's hatred is very subjective. And I want to give you an illustration from about 400 years ago. If you'll remember, those of you that remember your history, remember that from 1618 to 1648, there was what was called the Thirty Years' War in Germany. And it was basically a war between the Protestants and the Catholics. And they decimated the area known as the Palatinate. All right? So in Switzerland, um, the Swiss brethren were experiencing persecution for 100 or so years by this time. And so... um, the elector of the Palatinate at that time, Carl Ludwig, said, you know what, we could use some of these Swissers up here in the Palatinate. They're good farmers. We'll bring them up here to uh, rejuvenate the Palatinate. And to the persecuted Swisser, this looked like a pretty good deal because they had had a lot of pressure. Um, they had, there had been many martyrs. There had been well, just, a, just many things. But it looked like a good deal. So they took them up on it. But now, now listen to this. There were six things that they had to agree to in order to, to take uh, this, um, this elector up on his offer. So number one, they had to register as a Mennonite. So when they crossed the border into the Palatinate, they had to register. And if you did not register, you were fined right off the bat. So you better make sure you're registered. If you establish a church, there could be no more than 20 families to a church. So we'd already be over the top here at our church. This would be too big if we would have lived in those days. No other inhabitant in that land was allowed to give you lodging for whatever reason. That was illegal. You, You were not supposed to do that. So immediately they drove a wedge between the Mennonites and their neighbors. You could not proselytize. So in other words, you could not witness. You could not try to present the good news to your neighbor. That was, that was off limits. Lastly, you had to pay what was called a Mennonite recognition tax. All right? Now, that Mennonite recognition tax was six guilders, which means nothing to you and me today. Okay? We, don't, we don't understand guilders, do we? And if you look up current guilder, you know... Uh, what that's worth, it's kind of meaningless because what was it worth 400 years ago? So I tried to do a little bit of uh, research on this. One gilder in those days would equal $4,200 
in buying power today, okay? Average salary was 10 guilders. You do the math, that's 42,000. So that gives you a little bit of a, of a concept of, what, of the numbers we're dealing with. Now, remember I said the Mennonite recognition tax was six guilders. If you do the math quickly, that's $25,200. Now imagine, you come from Switzerland, you're living in the Platinate, you get these freedoms, but you get, this, you get this tax slapped on you, which is over half of the current salary, average salary, in the land that you're living in. Now, does this sound like freedom to you? It, it, it doesn't to me. To me, it does not sound like freedom. It sounds like oppression. But to, but, but to the persecuted Swisser, this was freedom. Now, I want to read you something here. In the fall of 1664 there was some ragtag leftovers from the different armies that descended into the Platinate and again wreaked havoc. Just gave, just, just wreaked havoc in the land. Just really gave the families living there, the Mennonites in particular, just wrecked what they had. There was a, there was a Mennonite living at that time by the name of, and I'm going to slaughter his name, but something like Yilis Castle was his name. Here's what he wrote in his diary, and we can read this today and maybe make a lesson. He's describing this, uh, this ragtag leftover band of soldiers that were roaming the land, and he said, Many a person is brought into need, mistreated to the point of death, many fair houses knocked apart, people stripped of their clothes, cattle and crops have disappeared, barrels are split open and our wine is poured out, and thus people are cheated of their keep. Just not a pretty picture. Now he makes some commentary on this, and listen to his commentary. This is what I want to. Uh, this is what I want to hone in on. He concludes this way: We have well earned this punishment. Being more concerned with temporal goods than salvation, and having lived in many ways like the world. Wow. What can a man say? My point is this. What is the world's hatred is a very subjective subject. He felt like he was living in freedom and he deserved his punishment. What should we be feeling like today? Why isn't the world's hatred always obvious? Because of the devil's wiles and our propensity to lose our spiritual discernment. It has been the experience of many Christians through generations that when times of peace come, there is this propensity to acquiesce to the world's ways. And thus, when you become part of the world and you march to its drummer, who's the world? There is no difference anymore between the church and the world, is there? The logical outcome of this twisted reasoning comes in verse 2 of 16. We read that verse. Yea, the time cometh when whosoever killeth you will think he doeth God's service. You get that? The world, I'm sorry, the church was the one persecuting the Christians. They thought they were doing God's service. They were a part of the world. They had gotten that wrapped up into their twisted logic that at the end there was no difference. 
It would be instructive to read the letters in Revelation to the churches, and it shows just how quickly, how quickly, we can lose our vision and become lax and lose our spiritual discernment. All right, the last one I would like to just say is through the generations, there are periods of time when society as a whole sees the value of applied Christianity. And even though they're not Christians, they will practice certain Christian values because there is benefit to those values. I am of the, of the persuasion, this is why we as Christians sometimes get a little confused here in this country, because indeed, when this country was founded, there was value placed on Christian principle. You cannot escape that fact. There was. As a matter of fact, I recently found out, I never knew this, maybe you did, but in the early, early days of this country, there was, there was a church tax, much like our school tax today. Everybody was taxed for the churches. And so you could decide which church that tax went to, but society saw such value in what the churches were doing for society that they were like, let's keep this good thing going. You know, this is good. Let's do this. And so we have been the recipients of this, of this thought process for generations. Now that's fast slipping away. But uh, for many, many, many generations, the value in this country that was placed on Christian principles has been fairly high. And that has been very much to our blessing. There's been a few speed bumps along the way. Civil War and World War I would be two in particular. But by and large, we've been treated well. Okay, I want to conclude with a few points on what can I do, how can, what do I do with this information, how do I prepare, should active hatred come my way down the road? What, what can I do? What would be some good things for me to look at? Now, one thing I want to say quickly is I do not want to make us feel guilty some way that we live in such a land of really pretty, it's pretty easy. We, we don't really have active hatred. God placed us here for a reason. I don't know that we necessarily have to feel badly about that. But we have to be realists and realize that we, what we experience is, a, is the anomaly. All right? it's not the, it has not been the case for many Christians for many years. All right, just a few things. Number one, make a conscious decided choice to cast your lot with Jesus and identify with his cause. Now that seems like irony on, at first glance. So you're telling me... But what I need to do to uh, prepare for the world's wrath is make sure I'm solidly in that camp. That's exactly what I'm telling you. That's exactly what I'm saying. And here's why I'm saying that. Jesus makes it very, very clear in Matthew 11 that um, there is a yoke that must be born if you cast your lot with him. But he also says that it is easy and it is light, insinuating that the yoke you have, if it's somebody else's yoke, which is the yoke of the world, it's hard. Okay? I'm telling you, you will wear a yoke either way. I'm asking you to take the easy yoke. All right? If you're sitting here this morning and you're, you find yourself taking off Jesus' yoke and putting on the world's yoke, I beg you, don't do that. If you have never decided to take Jesus' yoke, I beg you, please take it. 
the Hebrew writer says, Today, if you hear his voice, harden not your heart. Number two, let's love each other as brothers. I commented on that before. I won't, I won't say much on this. But, again, to stress, we have enough hatred in the world. Let's love each other. Do we have to hate each other? Do we have to do that? I don't think we do, but sometimes we almost act like it, don't we? Let's learn to love each other well. All right, number three, how can I cope for the world's hatred? Remember that the world's hatred will tend to catch people by surprise. Verse 18 says, if the world hates you, insinuating that sometimes it won't be as obvious. In verse 4 of chapter 6, it says, when the time comes, remember. In other words, there may be times when the time isn't here. In 1 John 3.13, John says, Marvel not, my brothers, if the world hates you. In other words, we tend to maybe marvel at that particular um, phenomenon. Remember this. There is an ebb and a flow to the world's hatred. And just because we're in a certain time period right now, the thing could change and catch us by surprise. All right. The fourth reason... The hatred that the world gives the Christian will, by any objective analysis, feel undeserved and very unfair. Verse 25 talks about this. It says, they have hated me without a cause. In verse 6, or I'm sorry, in verse 1 of chapter 6, it's, we are warned not to be offended. When the time comes, we shouldn't be offended. You know, we as Christians are bent on doing the right thing. That's what we want to do. That's what this picture here to my left is all about. That man did the right thing. He went and pulled that man out of that water, and he paid dear. He paid with his life for that thing. That's unfair. That don't feel right, right? Um, We have the current... Um, example of Brother Ken Miller sitting in prison for doing the right thing. That feels unfair. That feels wrong. But that's the way it is. To cope and prepare for hatred, we have to realize that you will be hated for doing the right thing. Mark it down. Verse 19. You're not of the world. We must maintain a clear-headed sense of just what the world is in times of peace so that we are not sucked up into the swamp of mediocrity. Second Corinthians 6, those very familiar verses, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you and be a father unto you, and ye shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. Revelation 18 says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Times of peace are, uh, are interesting times. On one hand, the Bible says we should pray for peace. We should, uh, we should pray for our kings and rulers that we can live quiet and peaceable lives. Um, those are, those are times that we, uh, that we enjoy. But what ends up happening in times of peace is there's a real temptation to move from principle to policy. 
codify a few details, get a few things right, call that separation, and allow huge breaches in what should be our walls of separation. And we experience much failure because of that and bow down to far too many of the world's idols. Mark it down. If that is your definition of separation today, when the rains descend and the floods come and the winds blow, you will fall like a house of cards. You will. Mark it down. It's in times of ease that we look around and we convince our, ourselves that the world just isn't half as bad as we thought it was. And we allow the God of this world to blind our eyes. Another point I'd like to make is very, very closely related. We have to prepare ourselves for the coming of the world's hatred by choosing to live out of the world. Verse 19 uses that phrase, out of the world. We have to make a conscious decision. When we're persecuted, the decision is made for us. We are strange, strangers and pilgrims by default. In times of ease, we choose to live like strangers and pilgrims. I won't comment on that a lot, except to read the verse out of Peter. Dearly beloved, I beseech you, I beg you, I beg you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. All right. Another point. Understand that the world's attitude is fickle and can turn very, very quickly. Never ever get the idea that the idea of persecution is between the two covers of the martyr's mirror. Never think that. It can turn very, very quickly. The Russian Mennonites found that out. Unprecedented freedom and liberty to serve as our consciences dictate has been our lot for many years, as I have alluded to before. But the problem is, is that postmodern culture is biblically, biblically illiterate. And somebody here this morning was mentioning the mandate handed down by the president this, this past week concerning bathrooms. And if you heard the news or read the news at all, you know what I'm talking about. My wife and I have discussed how can it be that society can get to this point. Well, the reason it does is because they have totally, they have no concept. Um, they are not guided by any enlightening principle at all. And they are terribly biblically illiterate. And I fear that we will reap a, uh, a, uh, a real harvest for the decades of godless sowing that's gone on in our world for many years. 1 Peter 5.8, again quoting from Peter, he says like this. He says, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. I'm going to read the last verse there in the RSV. It says like this. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experience of suffering is required of your brotherhood throughout the world. What I want to impress on, 
on you from this verse is, again, can I say it one more time? Do not expect that the world tarries, that this times of ease and comfort that we've experienced will be ours for infinity. I am not God. I have no idea what God has in mind. But if history is any indicator, the next 50 years will not be as easy as the last 50. I, I just don't see that. I hope I'm wrong. But I don't see that. Let's just, let's just understand that the world's attitude toward us is very fickle. Right now the world enjoys our pies and our furniture and our houses and our honesty and our work ethic. It can kind of benefit from that. But that thing can flip on its ear in a heartbeat, depending on circumstances. And I'd like to leave you with this closing thought. Keep perspective here. You know, this was kind of a, a downer for a sermon. You know what I mean? It's like, ugh. in fact, I wondered if I should even say it. And it's like, just, it's not a very much of a pick-me-up, you know? Well, I want to give you the pick-me-up right now. Let's turn to uh, chapter, I'm sorry, yeah, chapter 16, verse 33 of John. Skipping a whole chapter. But here's what Jesus says. These things have I spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. Do you get that? Jesus said, I told you all these terrible things, and... Um, Gave you a few pointers on what to do when the time comes. But he said, I did that so you could have peace. Now he says, in the world you will have tribulation. It's not going to be fun here in the world. I want you to get that. Tribulation. But be of good cheer. Cheer up. It's all right. Why is it okay? I have overcome the world. Isn't that a blessed thought? After all these downer thoughts, Jesus said, it's fine. Cheer up. I've overcome this stinky old world. I've, I've got it in the bag already. Paul says it so well in, first, in 2 Corinthians 4.17. He says, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment. Now that's perspective. Paul has a whole catalog of things that happened to him, but he said that's just light affliction, and it was for a moment. Done. Gone. And he says, it works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but on the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Again, I'd like to read you this in another version. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Because we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Folks, keep your eye on the eternal. It's pretty pitiful down here. Um, the news is no fun. never was, but it seems like it's getting progressively worse. And I by no means am a prophet. But I can tell you this. The world has already been overcome, and you just have to decide whether you're going to be a part of that camp or not.